I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey there, this is Christian Swain from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Rock and Roll Archaeology? What's that you say? We are a podcast network dedicated to digging deep into the amazing music that exploded out of the second half of the 20th century. We believe the music, culture, and technology wove together, and it is an important story of history as, say, the Italian Renaissance or the Impressionists of Paris. We have six shows, all with a different side of this incredible time. Rock Talk with myself and host Peter Ferrioli. Real Rock, and that's R-E-E-L, hosted by Andy King. Vinyl Snob with the legendary Dave Whitaker. Rock and Roll Librarian with the headmistress herself, Shelley Sorensen. Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview famous rock and roll personalities and the people who scribe the times and events. And finally, our full telling of the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, which started it all. Find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So let's get back to Between the Sheets of Rock and Roll with Shanty and Lynx and Muses and Stuff. I 
Cool. You want to get into it? I want to. Do you want to get into it? I'm excited for this one. I don't really know much about her. Okay. I'm really looking forward to telling you about our Wonder Woman today, Linda Ronstadt. I'm excited. Before we get into Linda, can you um, share some good muse news about uh, a certain somebody liking an Instagram post? Yeah, I posted a little happy birthday. I always post happy birthdays and I tag anyone who's still around and active on Instagram. And uh, Maite Garcia liked her post and it always gives me a little thrill, I guess. It's just nice to see that they're, uh, they know that we're here and that we love them. And um, I think that's happened a few times before, too. I think Bobby Brown was the last one. So, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, that's that's true. Um, and shout out to Slim Jim Phantom. I who's, love him. Yeah, who's been pretty active on our social media, which has been nice. And then I just happened to find his book. So, yeah, I'm a... I want to read it as well. He was married to Britt Eklund, so we yeah. should definitely. We'll do uh, an episode about Britt, a full one. We actually did talk about Britt before in the actress in the song. So if anyone wants to find out a little more about Britt, if you don't know anything, I think that's more about her and Rod Stewart, though. Yeah. So we're doing Linda Ronstadt today, and it's a little bit different than what we usually do, Mm -hmm. because if you think about Linda, what comes to mind immediately is just that she, in her own right, was an absolute, like, rock and roll, like, queen of rock herself. And and there was a period in the 70s where she actually was called the queen of rock. And the reason why I decided to reread Linda's book which is called Simple Dreams a musical memoir was because I had read Carly Simon's memoir Mm -hmm. and thought well it's too early to do an episode about her because she just released that book and I would just really encourage people to go check that out for themselves again um just just read the book yourself because it is that fantastic and maybe one day um, I'll talk about it but in the meantime I was like you know what I have this Linda Ronstadt book I'm gonna read it again and then um, I was with my friend Ryan when when we were out at the Casby Awards I said yeah I just started rereading Linda Ronstadt's book and he said oh great Um, but you know it's like really really sad about what happened to her and I was like, what happened? He said, she has Parkinson's disease and she's no longer able to sing. Oh, no. So, yeah. So oh, I just man. thought that, you know what? I think that it would be just a nice way to honor her and celebrate her by just Absolutely. letting our listeners she's know. She's a muse. She's an inspiration. And then speaking of her being a muse, so then I brought the book with me to Peterborough a couple weekends ago, and I was hanging out with my friend Dave Toby, who's the 
owner and operator of The Spill, like a legendary music venue in Peterborough. And then Joe Forte, who was on like episode three and who I've always really, really admired. I mean, like my roommates and I borderline stalked him <laughs> um, at the beginning because he was working at the, he works at the library. And so we'd go to the library for school stuff. And he'd be like, was, oh, you're uh, here. was Joe there? <laughs> was Joe at the library today? Oh, yeah, he was there. Or like, no, he wasn't there. Um but his music is like really one of some of my favorite music ever. Yeah. Actually, he said that he's been getting a lot of interesting traffic on his Bandcamp pages since the episode. Oh. So directed from the podcast. So uh, once again, check out Joe Forte online or on Bandcamp. And that's J-O-S Forte. Because his music is just absolutely beautiful. Um, and then I told them. Yeah. That I was reading Linda and they both went, oh, yeah, I was in love with her. <laughs> and so, yeah, Dave was just saying, yep, he used to, was to, everybody was just in love with her. And then on my bus ride home, Joe sent me a picture of a Linda picture and he's like, this is the one I would stare at. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all the more reason to really do Linda because like you just said, she really like she really inspired. Oh, and Joe was saying that he would listen to her albums and he would just be he was so young, he'd be blown away away by what he was hearing and he didn't even know exactly what instruments he was hearing at the time just mm -hmm. that it was you know so magical rich and magical yeah. and awesome yeah so just straight off the bat some of linda ronstadt accomplishments are that she has received 12 grammy awards wow two academy of country music awards cool one emmy Several Tony and Golden Globe nominations. She's toured all over the world and she became the first female artist in pop music history to release four consecutive platinum albums. Go, Linda. Yeah. Um, she's appeared on the covers of Time Magazine, Newsweek, and Rolling Stone, six times for that one. Collaborated with Neil Young, Jackson Brown, Dolly Parton, Emmy Lou, and I'll get into that in the episode. Awesome. Yeah. But let's start before that. Born in July 1946, uh, Linda was raised on a cattle ranch in a home built by her grandfather, Fred Ronstadt, in Tucson, Arizona. Cool. Her grandfather was born in Sonora, Mexico, so she's got that heritage, mm -hmm. which is a very important part of her life and career. Her grandfather owned a very... I sounded very Canadian when I said that. Her grandfather, or sound like I'm from Montreal with the A, her grandfather owned a very successful hardware store, which did business really often with family in Mexico. And she says, I deeply miss those times when the border was a permeable line and the two cultures mixed in a natural, a natural and agreeable fashion. It's such a shame that like our generation onward didn't get to experience this. You know, like even just... Canadians crossing the border to the States, we, you need that passport. Mm -hmm. And she said like some of her best times was when like after they do business, they'd go down, hang out with some families and have turtle soup. Turtle soup. Mm -hmm. Her mother named Ruth Mary first saw Linda's father when he rode his horse into her sorority house, <laughs> <laughs> pursuing another girl. But once they met, that was it. And they have a lovely, they had a lovely, lovely marriage, which is quite different than sometimes what we're used to talking about. For sure. For sure. That's nice to hear. Yeah. People do have them, apparently. Yeah. Um, her father, she said, had a beautiful baritone singing voice and their house was full of different kinds of music and lots of singing all of the time. Uh. 
Perfect. She had a very inspiring aunt named Aunt Louisa who lived in Spain and was a dancer. And she would come home and teach Linda and her sister dance moves and let them try on her outfits. She had an older sister named Susie and her brother named Pete. And then I think there was another younger brother as well. There was never any extra cash in their family, but they always had what they needed kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one of those families. She says, my mother used to joke that when she first met my father, he had a red convertible, a horse, a ranch, and a guitar. After she married him, all he had left was the guitar. <laughs> he had my mother too. Aww. So they rarely fought. And when they did, the kids, like it was out of sight yeah. and out of, or out of earshot of the kids. And they were always on each other's side. So Good for them. Yeah, right up until her mother passed away in 81, I believe it was. Um, yeah, like rem reminds me of my parents. It really does. Always on each other's sides. And if there was any ever conflict, mm -hmm. it was away from us. Doesn't sound like my parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think kind of through these episodes and um, what we're seeing with the upbringings and stuff, it's actually rare. To have Very. the upbringing that the parents are together and that... Everything's happy, everyone's yeah. content. Yeah. She talks about her upbringing in the desert in a really visceral way. That's really worth reading. Like, really worth getting the the book for. Because um, imagine that. Like, growing up in Tucson, Arizona in the 1950s and 60s. Like, so what that experience could have been yeah. like. She describes the heat and just her real burning desire to own a pony Aww. she had a best friend named dana who got her own uh, who had her pony who had a pony named murphy and she said that in those days you could own a pony for surprisingly little money and um, they lived on a ranch so eventually after like going after parents over and over and over again she got a pony yeah and so her and dana both had them um Sorry, Dana's pony was named Little Paint. And then Linda's pony was named Murphy. And before these girls were five years old, they would ride their ponies like around wow. town. No way. Yeah. Wow. How cool is that? So she's like a little cowgirl and yeah. she always imagines herself that way. It's weird because like, I mean, I guess the 50s, it was sort of dying out. But I, whenever I think of like cowboys and stuff, I think much earlier than the 50s yeah um she did face um some early childhood trauma when one day when her mom her and her mom had just picked up a springer spaniel puppy and her mom named the puppy his honor the judge on account of the like you know how the spaniels have the curly yeah, fur yeah. at the front <laughs> so they're driving home in the car and the spaniel just kind of out of nowhere jumps on her mother's lap which caused a bit of a car accident oh. but they seemed fine like there was nothing yeah they were all good they continued home um but then it was shortly after that that linda's mother was doing dishes and just lost control of her legs so she didn't panic or anything, but, and that was very much her mother's demeanor was like when big things happened, she didn't go into a big, she was just kind of like, oh, I seem to have fallen over. Okay. And her mother was taken to the hospital where Linda did not see her for six months. Wow. So there must've been some kind of something yeah. had been hit during the accident. And yeah. So 
the good news then is that her mother did eventually make a recovery after six months. And in the meantime, Linda and her siblings were nannied by a Scottish woman. Okay. Um, and Linda only got to see her mother one time in the hospital in that six months. Wow. So that, I mean, and she was very confused. Yeah. I and bet. I think her parents and her dad thought that this would be better for her if she wasn't around. She didn't really understand what was going on. Um, but anyways, her mom ended up going home, which makes me very happy. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, and they said that she would never walk again and things like that, but... She powered through. She did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she did not have an easy time going to school. As a young child, she was really shy, and so beginning school was really difficult for her. Uh, she said, as a little girl, I was taught that cowgirls don't cry. Aww. I didn't feel like a cowgirl the first day of school. And so it was back in those days where schools were run by nuns. Mm -hmm. And it was the time when children were seen and not heard. And so it was very difficult for her to lose her freedom at that point. And like there are stories of like little kids, like this little boy who like was squirmy and he was um, hung up. By the coat on the coat rack by his oh, collar no. and like when the kids would get uh when they were really good they would get points and then if they got a certain amount of points they'd have a party mm -hmm. not unlike things that we still do in elementary school yeah, today yeah. but one day the nun had like i guess they just would leave them sometimes and be like Behave. You better be like this when I get back. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess a big wind had blown through and like blown. It was like Mary or Jesus or something off of the. It was like a statue yeah, or something yeah. and it had shattered. And oh, so she no. walked back in and she was like, who did this? And they were and like the one this one like honest little girl was like, it was the wind. It blew in. And the nun was like, well, you were all having bad thoughts or something like that. So, oh, man. so they all, so they got their party taken away. Aww. And she said, we were devastated. We hadn't been thinking impure thoughts. We had been thinking about the Polish rosettes, which were the party treat that they always got to have Aww. when one of the students' mothers baked them for them. So that was what school was like back in the day. Oh, Lordy. Linda writes that she doesn't remember a time when there wasn't music in her house. Her brother Pete was in the Tucson, Arizona Boys Choir. Susie sang while doing the dishes. On Sundays, her father would play the piano. Her grandparents lived nearby, and they listened. And her grandparents listened to classical music, so she had a really well-rounded taste very early on. Okay. Yes, her parents were like into country, maybe a bit of rock and roll, and then perfect, perfect yeah. for. For what she would uh, become. Mm -hmm. She says there was no TV and the radio couldn't wander around with you because it was tethered to the wall and we didn't get enough allowance to buy concert tickets. The music I heard in those two houses before I was 10 provided we w me with material to explore for my entire career. Wow. So, I mean, with our all of our kids have the iPads and the, you know, the yeah. YouTube. Do you the think, YouTube? Are, do you think we're, yeah. I mean, I mean, hopefully we always produce quality musicians regardless. Yeah. But maybe that little bit of boredom and, and f having just, mute, like, instruments lying around might I know. foster yeah. more. Let's hope creative you guys know where i'm going with this i'm just gonna stop there i guess we'll find out in you know 20 30 years 
Yeah. Um, she she remembers like one of the first times she ever really identified as a singer, and it was when she was four and singing with her family. Her sister said, "Looks like we've got a soprano here." And then from then on, she had this identity as a soprano this singer. So she always considered herself a singer. She talks about her inspirations and her curiosity about music history. So yeah, mu- it's like it's a musical memoir right that she talks about Mm -hmm. and it's really really intelligent so i really like what she says here um and this is when she sort of tries to hear how artists influenced other artists she said the regional accent one speaks also affects rhythms and phrasing so someone who is copying has to import the accent too for me it helps to know the vocal bloodlines in order to decode the phrasing of a song I once sang a Tom Petty song called The Waiting, which has an intricate rhythm scheme for fitting lyrics into the music. Petty, as an artist I admire, came along later than many classic rockers and was able to absorb their elements to his writing and singing style. As I studied his vocal performance, it broke down something like this. Tom, with his Florida accent, was copying Mick Jagger with his British accent, who was copying Robert Johnson from the Mississippi Delta. And in another part of the same song, Tom was copying Roger McGuinn, who was copying Bob Dylan, who copied Woody Guthrie, who was in turn copying someone lost to our generation. Hmm. Wow. That's really fascinating. Yeah. The whole book is really fascinating in that, in that kind of sense. I wonder why you picked that quote. I wonder. (laughs) It was in her early teens that folk music began to play on the radio. So moving on, her brother went to work for the police. Her sister had three children and less time for music. So it was Linda who went on to have the career in music. Like many people trying to play music, she began in coffee houses. Mm -hmm. In 1964, she drove with her mom to the coast to visit Aunt Louisa and decided to go back herself in 1965. Okay. She slept on sofas or any floor where she and her bandmates would fit. Um, she'd heard about the birds. And then when she listened to them, she knew that California was where everything was happening. And that's where she had to go. So she started making plans to move to L.A. at the end of the spring semester. She handed in her last English paper and told her professor that she was heading to Los Angeles to sing in a, rock, a folk rock band. <laughs> he was like, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> She waited until that night, until the night that she left to tell her parents. Yeah, they tried to talk her out of it, of course, and she felt so guilty. But eventually her dad came up to her and um, there's a really cute kind of thing that he said to her. She said... When it became apparent that they couldn't change my mind, my father went into the other room and returned with the Martin acoustic guitar that his father had bought brand new in 1898. When my father began singing as a young man, my grandfather had given him the instrument and said, Ahora que tienes guitarra, nunca tendres hombre. I tried my best there. I I don't know. I tried. (laughs) But what that means is, now that you own a guitar, you will never be hungry. Aww. My father handed me the guitar with the same words. Then he took out his wallet and gave me $30. I made it last a month. That's so sweet. Yeah. I'm glad they were supportive. and You know, that would have sucked to have left without that last, you know, push from them. So Yeah. 
She moved in with two of her bandmates in a bungalow in Ocean Park, which is between Santa Monica and the Venice Piers. They settled into a domestic routine where on Sundays they'd bake bread and walk down to the beach to the seafood market to buy fresh clams for breakfast. Clams for breakfast, okay. Yeah. They started going to the Troubadour in West Hollywood for their open mic Monday nights. And one of the things that became pretty apparent early on, like we're still in like you know, page 30 of the book is Linda really called out um, a lot of the creepiness of the business. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this book, it was written a few years ago when these conversations definitely were not happening like they are right now. And yeah, so it was in 2013 that the book was published and So she talks about how uh, she met somebody at the Troubadour and he was in the business and he said, well, let me take you out for dinner. She and her thinking that it was a music um, meeting, a business meeting went out. He basically sat down and said, you know, you're brand new in town here and I want to help you for a price for a price. And of course, that price was to sleep with him. Yeah. So she turned it down. Um, She ended up signing a management contract with um, somebody who handled Tim Buckley and Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Um, And then Frank and this guy would eventually start a record label. So I cannot wait to read you this quote, what she says. Okay, so he and Zappa would later start a couple of record labels, Straight and Bizarre. He also booked what were called freak-out dance performances for the GTOs, a quartet of girl groupies Zappa had assembled that included the legendary Miss Pamela, now Pamela Dibar. Miss Pamela, undoubtedly the model for the character Penny Lane in the Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous, was as beautiful as a fawn. She seemed guileless with an underlying kindness and a keen sensitivity. Never cloying, her pre-natural sweetness produced a head-spinning effect. That's the best quote, and it still applies to Miss P today. Doesn't it? It's so perfect. Somebody's just so pure of heart, so beautiful. Great spirit, just so lovely. Yeah. I oh, I just I squealed when I read that again. <laughs> a man named Herb Cohen also approached them at the Troubadour and wanted to sign them. He brought them to Capitol Records and they were really starting to get somewhere. Linda remembers meeting Janice Joplin. She has all these really cool stories about all these people that she just kind of met and had these wow. really... It was that time. Yeah. Um, so she met Janice Joplin, the troubadour, and Janice told her that um, the new dress that she had been wearing made her feel really pretty. They discussed what they liked to wear on stage, and at this time, earthy funk was God, and the women were generally, she said, genuinely confused as to what they should wear. Oh. Like, should they be the... Yeah. Like, I see what you're saying. Interesting. Yeah. Trying to find the right style for the the time. Mm-hmm. Their first record didn't sell, so they looked around for other material to record, which is where different drum came from and became a hit. When she heard it on the radio for the first time, so when Linda, and I think she was with a couple members of her band, heard it for the first time, they were literally in her car as it was breaking down. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they had to pull over and push it to a gas station. Oh my goodness! So 
different drum was you know started yeah. starting to make national playlists and it's on the radio and they're pushing the car <laughs> well it's about to turn <laughs> in 1968 they opened for the doors yes I'm... and they toured in college towns she says that they were tolerated by the doors audience <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an interesting combination and the members of the band were very nice to them she said raymond zarek and them were solid guys and jim was moody in distance and she noticed that he liked to drink yeah she says that the audience and band dynamic was different than anything she had ever seen and that the audience seemed to project themselves onto Jim. Interesting. She said it seemed needy, narcissistic, unhealthy, and dangerous. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's about it. <laughs> she found it troubling that Jim seemed to use the microphone stand as a weapon to protect himself. And she talks about going to an after party at the house of some college girls who were very nice and had a really cute and tidy apartment, which Jim proceeded to tear apart. Ugh. Drunk Jim, the destroyer. Yeah. Yeah. Was it Shiva, the destroyer? Something like that. One night in Boston, Jim asked Linda if she'd like to spend some time with him during their free time. When he was sober, he seemed sweet and shy. One night when she was hanging out with her friend Linda, Jim wanted to come back and hang out. But thinking about what had happened the last time, <laughs> she didn't want anything to happen to her friend's apartment, so she wouldn't let him up. Yeah. He pounded on the glass, rang the doorbell, and yelled that he wanted to come in. And she was she was smart. <laughs> She's like, not going to go there. <laughs> and uh, she did meet Pamela Corson oh, yeah? at the Fillmore East. She said of that night, Morrison arrived eventually. He was accompanied by a beautiful girl with long red hair. She was bruised from her jaw to her collarbone. Oh, she said when someone asked her what had happened to her, I ran into a door. And the door was named Jim. One of their yeah. legendary fights. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Linda decided to go solo at this point. Um, and figured that if she wanted to start making some money, she really had to hit the road. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another super creepy encounter that happens shortly after this. Of course there is. Yeah. Okay, so this guy this time, she said... Um, What'd she say? He was just like, I think, a pal, like a friend of a friend of somebody. I'm not sure if he was actually in the business, but I think he was hanging out with the crew. Mm -hmm. um, he said that he often felt at a place and lonely. And she said like he wasn't threatening at all. Mm -hmm. And she went back to her room Oh, it was a producer, okay. okay, that she had met that day. And um, so she went back to her room and she got a phone call from a producer that she had met earlier in the day. He wanted to come, so she says, he wanted to come to my room and discuss some of the details of the show. Since I had no one from my, manager, my management to help negotiate for me, and since he was essentially a stranger, I might have... and might have less than honorable intentions, I declined and said I would see him in the morning. I was a little sharp with him, and after I hung up, I felt bad about it. It's like, what a surprise. That is how we are so socialized. Yep. It's like, oh, you weren't polite. Trying not to offend him. Trying, yeah. Sure. He was not from the South, and I thought that 
he might be feeling out of place and lonely. About three minutes later, the phone rang again. It was the same guy saying that he really did need to talk to me that night and it wouldn't take long. Thinking I might have misjudged him, I relented and told him no. that he could come up. No, Linda. I should have followed my first instinct because as soon as he entered my room and closed the door, he removed every stitch of clothing he was wearing. I was embarrassed and frightened. Jesus. Like he wondered why I was so shocked. Wasn't I a hippie? Don't hippies believe in free love? Ugh. In case this wasn't enough to impress me, he mentioned that he could make things go well for me in the television business. Jesus. Thinking how little I liked performing on television, I rolled my eyes and I told him that I was leaving, that he'd better be gone when I returned or I would call hotel security. Was he gone? He said no one would believe me because of the way I looked and dressed. Jeans, long straight hair, and no bra. Then he said that no one on the show would believe me either, so I'd better keep my mouth shut or he would make things very unpleasant for me. I went out the door downstairs to sit in the tiny Ramada Inn lobby where I felt bored, annoyed, and sleepy. After about an hour, I went back, found my room empty, and put the chain on the door. I called to Herb and told him what had happened. He was furious at the guy from his office for leaving me alone in Nashville. He decided that it would stir up trouble if we complained about the producer uh. and I was likely to be dropped from the show. Yeah, you can groan again. <laughs> Herb felt that the best way to handle it was to act like it didn't happen. Of course. And he sent another person to help me for the rest of the time I had to be there. The next morning at the read-through, the man who had been in my room turned to me and said for everyone to hear, I left my watch in your room last night. Could you get it for me later? Oh, fucker. I don't remember his name, only that he was soon to be married. I felt sorry for his bride-to-be. That's so awful. That's, yeah, that's so reminiscent of so many stories yeah and that just proves you know how important these conversations are now like we gotta we gotta stop this yeah and just like thanks to linda for speaking up about it like yeah yeah Yeah. things like this have always been happening and always will unless we use our voices which we are yes (sighs) so linda was hanging out with grand parsons and the burrito brothers when he said he was going to the Chateau Marmont. There, Linda met Keith Richards because the Stones were putting the final touches on Let It Bleed. She ended up staying up and jamming with them until, like, way too early because Graham had promised her a ride home that night. But then, like, I think he had a motorcycle. He was blasted, and she was like, yeah, I'm not going to go anywhere with anybody. And, um... Linda is allergic to alcohol, so she wasn't, she did not drink during her career. And I think she said she like tried pot a few times, but nothing crazy and tried cocaine a little bit. But again, nope. Her Um, memory must be so sharp. Yeah. Well, that's why this book is so fantastic. And so she, you know, she did a whole lot of noping on that stuff. And I think it really was good. Yeah. Um, But she said that night they were all practicing wild horses, which the Burrito Brothers recorded. And then the Stones used it for Sticky Fingers. Huh. Which I didn't know. I didn't know that either. So we're in 1970 now, and Jackson Brown is living in a little bungalow adjacent to them. He was the youngest one of the bunch and had already written these days by the time he was 16. Wow. Yeah. Talent. They ended up touring together and alternating who would be headlining um, when they were touring together. Cool. Yeah. He was the one who taught her how to sing Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. 
Nice. Yeah, and she goes on to talk a little bit about Jackson's tragic past, um, how he was married to a woman who ended up committing suicide, leaving him with a very young child who he ended up bringing on the road with him. Um, She met Peter Asher, and they began pretty much a lifelong career relationship. At first, he wouldn't manage her because he was managing Kate Taylor, who was James Taylor's sister. She was oh. also a musician. And he thought, he thought that that might be conflicting because they were kind of doing similar a similar styles. thing. Yeah. But she ended up getting him later when Kate decided that it, like the music business actually wasn't for her. For her. Yeah. Carly Simon talks uh, about her in her book quite a bit, which is really cool. Cool. Um, she would go to dinner parties at Peter's house, uh, who had a wife named Betsy. And Betsy, she says, was a good cook and a sympathetic listener. Mm. Um, these parties included people like Jackson Brown, jo- John Boylan, uh, Carol King, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Don Henley. All the amazing, you know, recording artists in that specific area. I know. So at this point, Linda was searching for a backup band. And guess who fit the bill? Tell us. The Eagles. Yes. (laughs) Um, So this is before they were the Eagles, and she kind of brought them together. Uh, One of the biggest things that did bring them together was when they were touring, and the guys had to double up in hotel rooms. Glenn wound up up rooming with Don and discovered why Don played so well um, for singers, like because he was a drummer and yeah. he played really well. He drummed well for singers, and it turns out that he was a singer himself and a good one at that. He was also an accomplished songwriter, so the two of them ended up playing music all night, and the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome! It was Linda who suggested that they add Bernie Lead into the band, and it was in Linda and her uh, Linda and her roommate who offered them a place to record. And once the four members were together, they ended up coming up with Witchy Woman. So basically. If you like the Eagles and all those dudes, you have Linda to thank for that. You can thank Linda Ronstadt for that. The last show that she played with the Eagles as her backup band was at Disneyland in 1971. (laughs) And just a funny uh, side note to that, that in the contract, it had a stipulation that her skirt had to be a certain length and that she had to wear a bra. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Okay. It's Disney. Fair enough. I guess. I don't know. I think they still have like strict rules about people, uh, you know, their employees and stuff. Probably. Uh, In 1973, she began to tour with Neil Young. She was hanging out with Chris Hillman and he told her about a singer he was really into at the moment called Emmy Lou. She was very conflicted when she ended up checking out Emmy Lou because it was one of those scenarios when you find someone doing what you're doing or want to be doing, but yeah. they're doing it better. They are very similar. They're both very beautiful and they got the similar style. I can I can see. Yeah, so this is exactly her words, what she says about it. My reaction to it was slightly conflicted. First, I loved her singing wildly. Second, in my opinion, she was doing what I was trying to do, only a whole lot better. Then came a split-second decision I made that affected the way I listened to and enjoyed music for the rest of my life. I thought that if I allowed myself to become envious of Emmy, it would be painful to listen to her and I would deny myself the pleasure of it. If I simply surrendered to loving what she did, I could take my rightful place among the other drooling Lou fans, and then maybe, just maybe, I might be able to sing with her. 
Aww. I surrendered. Beautiful. Yeah. And then again, another lifelong friendship there and musical collaborations. Mm-hmm. By 1974, Linda had been going at it for a few years and she had one financial goal to make enough money to buy a washer and dryer. She went on tour with Jackson Brown for three months. Things really started to happen for her because in 1975, her song, You're No Good, went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And I Can't Help It, If I'm Still in Love With You, went to number two on the country chart. Damn. Damn. (laughs) She moved to Malibu. Which, like, what a dream. Yeah. And uh, she said, like, she started running. You know, she just started running on the beach. She was invited by Neil Young to sing harmony on his American Stars and Bars album. And on that album, she sang the harmonies to Heart of Gold and Old Man. Wow. I had no idea. No, me neither. Okay, another funny... Well, okay, I don't know if we want to call this funny, Mm -hmm. but another interesting encounter she had one day when she was roller skating um, with a couple of people was afterwards when they were done roller skating, they were kind of talking about who had been in trouble with the law. At this point, Linda had spent like a couple of hours in jail once when her band had gotten arrested for something. It wasn't anything big. And she tells the story about how she had these little shorts on and um, it's pretty funny. Like no charges were laid against the band or her or anything like that. But she was kind of like, oh yeah, one time this happened what about you and this woman said yeah i've been to jail and they were like for what and she was like murder what? it was leslie van houten no of the manson no. murders she was out on like bail or parole or yeah. whatever it was and they didn't realize no not until she mentioned that and then it was shortly after that that leslie van houten went back to jail, jail. and remained there yeah wow and is still there yeah jesus that's crazy. Yeah. Linda was now playing huge venues and her life was getting very predictable. She would make one album a year, which would take a few months, and then she would play what she called one night stands. You know, one. I gotcha. You got me. I don't have to explain that. Her records are really selling at this point. She was grateful for the gigs, but she couldn't stand the kind of sound she got She got out of a huge arena. Unlike the Troubadour, where you're playing gigs like this, um... And you get to go see people that you admire. It makes it a lot more difficult to like go see, like drop in to see people play who like you know, like Emmy Lou, yeah. where you're like you gotta go check out this musician because it's expensive to yeah. go to these shows and the sound was bad. Yeah, you lose a connection too when you're in some such a vast arena space. Yeah. She was really happy when they went to Europe and got to play smaller venues again because she wasn't as big in Germany and France. Mm-hmm. But she says the inspiration was short-lived. We were soon back in the USA pounding the same old circuit in the same distinctly uninspiring arenas. Add to this the gnawing loneliness of life lived perpetually in motion with not enough time in any one place to nurture relationships or build trust. I was beginning to feel miserable and trapped. Aww. So this is kind of nice. Um, A bit of a change for her was she went to London and ended up working with the Muppets. (laughs) Um, She was also learning the parts for a play uh, called Pirates. Or it was like Pirates of Penzance. Um, Pirates of Penzance. So things were starting to be more in motion for her. And she was working on other creative projects were really fueling her. So I'm going to tell you about a romance that she had with Kermit the Frog. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I was excited about getting to work with them and had an idea that I wanted to have a romance with Kermit. I suggested a song to Gershwin's I've Got a Crush on You, which I could sing in a confessional manner to him, and then a rock and roll song, the Shoop Shoop song, It's in His Kiss. It's in his kiss, yes. For after he kissed me, I was warned severely not to let my lipstick touch his green felt lips or it would stain. Since Kermit had already made a serious commitment to Miss Peggy, our affair was doomed and we had to part like Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in the last scene of Casablanca. In a wave of sympathy, the entire Muppets ensemble, including a surprisingly forgiving Peggy, joined Kermit and me in the finale of When I Grow Too Old to Dream, a 1930 standard that I'd recorded on my album Living in the USA. Somewhere in the middle, I sang Blue Bayou in the aforementioned Victorian togs and bare feet with a chorus of frogs chirping along from lily pads <laughs> floating in an artificial bayou. Oh, no. It was ridiculously so good funny. fun. And that's all on YouTube. I you was can just going to ask. the best. And I was watching it over and over. Like, not only that, was I listening to the songs yeah. and watching them. Then when TJ came over the other night, I was like, you got to watch these. Yeah, I'm excited. I got to see those. It was so much fun. Aww. So she began working seriously on the Pirates of Penzance and moved to Manhattan that summer. They were performing in Central Park and then it moved to Broadway. She did a performance on Saturday Night Live, which unfortunately I could not find online. Mm. Uh, Pirates then became a movie and while she was filming, she read books by Henry James and Zola and Flaubert. One quote that she really resonated with Flaubert was, be regular and ordinary in your everyday life like a bourgeois so you can be violent and original in your work. Hmm. She said, you know, she tried, but you know, it's like, is <laughs> but anyways, I like that. Her mother died around this time. Um, shortly after 1980, she made her first digital album. So instead of recording things just on the floor, they were able to piece things together and do all the things that go into a digital album. Interesting. Um, in terms of... Um, you know, female rockers. It's interesting to know that Linda says that she considers Chrissy Hind. Hind. Hind of the Pretenders, the first fully realized female rocker. She says she has the musicianship, originality, seductively cool attitude, and guitar chops to secure her place in the tradition. Interesting. Yeah. I love Chrissy. She has a book as well. You should do an episode on her sometime yeah but you know linda was really able to do it all like country rock um broadway musicals film yeah. and then uh she got to go back to her roots and start doing some traditional mexican music wow really i didn't mm -hmm. know she did that mm -hmm. yeah she really covered all the bases mm -hmm. so if you're wondering about her dating life, her personal life, she actually doesn't mention too much about her love affairs over the years. Yeah. Um, in an interview uh, that she did in 2013, she actually said, don't expect me to kiss and tell. Aww. She does explicitly mention a guy named Jerry Brown, who was smart and funny, not big into drinking and drugs, um, which suited her, obviously, because she wasn't into that stuff either. Yeah. Um, he was interesting and had a profession in things that interested Linda, such as the safety of nuclear power plants, agricultural soil erosion, water politics, and farm workers' rights. He was a governor and worked with Mother Teresa in India. They wow. remain on great terms to this day. Cool. I guess... Uh, all she wants to say about her relationships is like in her music. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, 
JD, I did a bit more digging. Um, but I, like out of respect, like she doesn't talk about it. We won't talk about it too much. Yeah. But uh, the songwriter JD Souther um, says, remembers falling for, who wrote her hit Faithless Love? Oh, yeah. Remembers falling for Ronstadt when he asked her to cook him dinner. She made me peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He laughed. Mm-hmm. their romance was short-lived but they've remained close we made a lot of music together some of the very best after we had broken up most of our relationship was listening to great music together she changed very little since i met her i still love her dearly Aww. um and i did see that um besides the governor jerry brown she did date george lucas for a little while no way was engaged to him and i don't know if this is true or not i mean it says it on the internet so it must be true in the 80s jim carrey Wow, that's an interesting one. He would have been really young. Yeah, but you know what? She only mentions Jerry and Kermit the Frog. So those were her true loves, That's a really interesting one, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just continuing on a little bit, um, she really does say that she had her dreams realized when she recorded an album called Canciones de Mi Padre, released in 1987. Um, It was immediately certified double platinum, sold millions of records worldwide, and was the biggest selling non-English language album in American recording history. Hmm. Yeah, she said performing the Mexican shows were the favorites of her career. I would sing two or three songs at a time, change costumes, and be back in time to watch the dancers. I never tired of them. The musicians were stellar and included a number of powerful singers. I learned from them every night. The members of our touring company became close immediately, and I didn't feel the loneliness that I had experienced during previous tours. Riding on the bus late at night, I would doze off to the sound of rich voices speaking in a mix of Spanish and English, just like in my childhood. After the surreal experience of being caught in the body-snatching machinery of the American celebrity juggernaut, I felt I was able to reclaim an essential part of who I was, a girl from the Sonoran Desert. Awesome. And, like, there are so many other great stories in here. Like, I could honestly go on and on. Like, she has an amazing Brian Wilson story. She has an amazing Randy Newman story. You know, she talks about her passion for high fidelity sound that, you know, makes me feel like I really need to rejig my entertainment system. Mm. Um, You know, she says, instead of people having a dedicated space to hear music with stereo and speakers, people are listening on cheesy laptop speakers or in isolated spaces created by earbuds. (laughs) That makes her sad. It's true. Yeah. Linda never married. She really didn't feel that it was necessary for her. She just... Yeah. I feel her. Yeah. And in December of 1990, she adopted an infant daughter named Mary Clementine. And in 1994, she adopted a baby boy named Carlos Romstadt. Aww. Yeah. So she, you know, she has a family. And um, I looked them up online and there's not a whole lot. They seem like kind of a private bunch. And well, it's like... Good for her because that's not easy to be nowadays with the internet and everything. So... She obviously, like, really wants it that way, you know? Yeah. Linda recorded her last album in Louisiana and sang her last concert on November 7th, 
2009 at the Brady Memorial Auditorium in San Antonio. She was performing with her beloved Mariachi Las Campros, which is a dance troupe. Her old bandmate, who had been in the audience, said that he had never seen her as relaxed and happy as when she was singing her Mexican shows. About her Parkinson's disease, she says, Toward the end, I was just shouting. It was really taking a toll on... So she she knew it was going to be her last show. Yeah. She was devastated, but not entirely surprised by the Parkinson's diagnosis. Her vocal difficulties, she now believes, were the early signs of the muscle failures associated yeah. with the onset of the disease. I've never seen her in a state of despair about anything, including this, said John Rockwell, the former New York Times music critic, who has been a friend for close to 40 years. I know she misses singing. It's been the center of her life. But there is a certain kind of personality that has a cheerful attitude no matter what. That's Linda. That's beautiful. Yeah. So that's our... That was wonderful. Little episode about Linda Ronstadt. I love uh, all the little add-ons about, you know, cool uh, hangouts or meetings or just little little pieces with all the great rock and roll. I mean, she really was uh, part of an era that produced some unbelievable talent. Yeah, you're right. I have one more little thing that I would like to read. Please. Okay, so she will finish it off on this beautiful note. Right. She says, Someone once asked me why people sing. I answered that they sing for many of the same reasons the birds sing. They sing for a mate, to claim their territory, or simply to give voice to to the delight of being alive in the midst of a beautiful day. Perhaps more than the birds do, humans hold a grudge. They sing to complain of how grievously they've been wronged and had to avoid it in the future. They sing to help themselves execute a job of work. They sing so the subsequent generations won't forget what the current generation endured or dreamed or delighted in. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That was wonderful. Yeah. I'm going to have to pick this book up. She certainly has a way with words. Yeah. And that's it. She says, you know, voice, musicianship, and story. Mm-hmm. It is rare that the artist who has all three in abundance, and Linda is certainly one of those people. Most definitely. So thank you for everything, Linda. We love you so much. You are probably going to be difficult to find online, <laughs> but hopefully we can reach you somehow and just let you know that uh, your music and your words and your story uh, means a lot to us yeah. and always will. And thank you, Shanti. That was wonderful. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Uh, Links, you want to tell them where they can find us online? Oh, yeah. Uh, Twitter at Shanti and Links. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, Muses and Stuff podcast. And uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. iTunes. Leave us a review. Please. We'd like to read a few more new ones. We'd appreciate it. We get a big thrill out of We do. Yeah. So, yeah, give us a thrill. Give us a thrill. You can't buy a thrill. No, Steely Dan. (laughs) Oh, you know. Okay, bye. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. 
steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica. The heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.